if it takes this long to do a business valuation for SBA, why are we saying 10 business days? It's like you're working on it for a couple hours each day. What happens if you take that and concentrate it in a shorter time frame and are able to work on it in three to five hour chunks per day? And it's like, oh, if that's possible, you could do a lot. And so when I, yeah, when I entered the space, I'm like five business days. Welcome to the Before You Buy or Sell a Business podcast, where we help buyers and sellers learn more about the acquisition process, discuss recent transactions, and stay up to date on the latest news in the market. Here's your host, Jared Johnson. All right. So today I got Ryan Hutchins with Peak Business Valuations. How you doing, Ryan? Oh, doing good. Thanks, Jared. Yeah. It's getting cold out here in Salt Lake. Oh, it feels normal. It feels good. <laughs> it feels normal. feels good. So, all right. Well, love working with you um, on our projects and doing our business appraisals, valuations. Um, maybe we can start and just find out a little bit about your background, where you grew up, your college education, all that fun stuff. Yeah. So background wise, um, I'm originally from the Bay Area in San Francisco. Went to school at BYU here in Utah, studied finance, went to Santa Clara, studied accounting, thought, why would I get an accounting degree? And so instead I took a three-month, 33-semester or 33-semester credit certification in accounting. So new class every eight days. Oh, my God. Um, Went to Deloitte, got my CPA, learned I did not like working 80, 90-hour weeks. (laughs) And went to a business valuation firm where they only expected me to work 40-hour weeks and thought, oh, that's nice. What do I do with my remaining time? So instead, on between like 5 a.m. and 8, I studied valuation theory, which is very entertaining. It's like reading Lord of the Rings, but not. Um, And... I progressed at that valuation firm to the point where I was taking over the annual operating plan, selling and fulfilling and realizing, oh, I should start my own valuation business because this current company focuses on 30 valuation project engagements. And I really just like working with small business owners. So I left, started Peak in August of 2018 And my main focus was small business owners and the primary referral source is SBA lenders when it comes to valuing small businesses. So landed my first project valuation engagement in November of 2018. And today we now do roughly 1,200 business valuations a year for individuals buying and selling businesses for SBA lenders. Um, for individuals doing gift and estate tax planning. And then we have an array of other services that I never thought I would get into. But when you get an inquiry every week for quality of earnings, you're like, I should do that. Yeah. So did you study that at five o'clock in the morning as well? I did not. No, I got to a point where I needed to hire someone who actually knew what they were doing in that space because I didn't want to learn it. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So 1200 a year. Did, so when you started, did you have a goal in mind of how many you wanted to do per year? My whole goal was to make $250,000 a year. Okay. And just work by myself and have a nice life. Yeah. Well, I think you surpassed that. So that's great. <laughs> so, and then I think since then you've also acquired some businesses, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So in May of 2021, 
I did an SBA loan through First Internet Bank for a water softening company in Park City, Utah. And the reason why I did it is, one, I had a buddy that sold four Freedom Boat Club franchise locations in Virginia and made money. And I was like, hey, I need to put this capital to work. And because we value individuals, businesses that are looking to sell, they will have someone intended to buy their business. And if it falls through, they will typically come back to me and ask, hey, do you know anybody else? And this particular business owner kept coming back to me every six months and kind of complaining about the key employee that was going to buy the business and finally fired him. And then I said, I'll buy your business since he's not a part of it. So we bought the business because I wanted to learn about SBA financing and the whole process on the other side of the coin, which it is a a very long process. So it's good to have a good, smart BDO kind of holding your hand through the whole thing. And so bought that business in 2021, bought a concrete contracting company in 2022. And this year we've invested and partnered. So instead of buying the businesses, we found that it's more effective to partner with individuals who are going to mm-hmm. operate it. So we own a minority stake now in the companies, but we provide them mentorship resources and our relationships. And we now own a striping franchise territory in Salt Lake and Utah County. It's with a company called 1-800-STRIPER. It's a new franchise out of New York. I'm pretty sure you're going to be seeing them a lot. All right. Because we, we've chatted with the franchise ors and explained to them that they should just have someone that they refer. Yeah. All their buyers to. Well, let's go sit down with them. And then we're looking at a Sealmasters franchise and a fencing company to acquire. Yeah. So you're just going to keep going with it, I guess. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, it's just a game. You, I mean, you you went from not wanting to work eighty to ninety hours a week. So, what are you doing now? One hundred and twenty or something? Went the other way with it. So, yeah, schedule wise, I'm I'm very different. I wake up at three a.m., start working immediately. Then I take a break and work out and do all my other morning routines, and then pretty much work until five and work on the weekends too. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a wild. Uh, a wild world that you know small business finances especially the the you know the key people that are are doing the volume they people always think like oh they they just work at a bank they they hang out they get holidays off and stuff and they don't realize how much work goes into it and stuff so wow that's yeah 3 a.m well at least i know when to email you now so i'll reach out to you at that point so i mean kind of walk me through it already but as far as um learning the valuation theory at what point do you have to get the designations maybe you can talk a little bit about what goes into the designations what they mean um mm-hmm. you know which ones you carry and and kind of how that works in, in your world yeah so there are several different designations the first one that i received was called the accredited business valuator and that was through the aicpa which is the same organization that issues cpa license Okay. So because I was a CPA, it was that much easier to go down that path and get that designation. And what it required was X amount of valuation engagements, which I was the primary lead, and then two tests that I needed to study for and pass. So with that one, is it is it more focused on M&A, like larger transactions, or is it 
all the way from it's real small. Yeah, so it covers the whole breadth of valuation. So when studying for these exams to get the credential, it's all the way from teaching you the history of business valuation to code to ethics to how you actually go about performing the business valuation and then the various types. So it's there's nothing really specific about it. The other designations that I have, the primary organization is the American Society of Appraisers, so ASA. And they have a designation titled the ASA, which I did all the coursework for, turned in a valuation report, and they wrote back and said, you need to include this valuation approach, this valuation method, X, Y, and Z, and said, this is junk. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I, I put in SDE multiples, and they're like, what's an SDE multiple? <laughs> and what I learned is there's a vastly different perspective from larger companies to small businesses. And so for them, I had to put together a new report, which it's been three years and I still haven't put it together. <laughs> but I need to look at public company transactions and public company data for multiples instead of looking at private transactions, which is all you need to look at for small businesses. Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't really apply to what you do. So no, it doesn't you apply. Been focused on doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. I haven't gone through it, but we've recently hired an individual that has 25 years of valuation experience and performs trainings for others teaching them about business valuation. And he's like, oh, this is what you need to do to update your report. So it, it's up to snuff for the ASA. Oh, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. But ASA came out with a designation for those who didn't want to submit the report called an accredited member, so AM. Okay. So I have that by default. Okay. The last main credential in business valuation is called the CVA. So a certified valuation analyst through the National Association of Certified Valuation Analysts, so NACVA. And that is primarily the one that almost every valuation professional now is getting initially because it's not the most difficult process to go through if you meet all the various educational and professional work requirements. We have individuals on our team that have that designation and I've looked at it because I love continuing education and why not add more acronyms behind my name? <laughs> Alphabet soup. There you go. So, all right, cool. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what are all the services that your firm provides then now? Yeah. So primary service that we provide is working with SBA lenders, providing business valuation services as an independent third party, machinery and equipment appraisals and feasibility studies for banks. One of the areas in business valuation that we wanted to focus on when we started Peak was education because the value of anyone's business is a black box. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to focus on content. So articles like how to value an HVAC company, value drivers of an HVAC company, how to buy or sell an HVAC company, and just started focusing on these long-form keywords. And now we have over... 4,000 pages of content on our website, getting about 18 to 20,000 people a month coming to it. And so we get about 30 to 40 leads a week of individuals that are just genuinely interested about business valuation, whether they're looking to grow their company. And so they want to get an initial like 
what's the value of my business today? And if they implement X, Y, and Z strategies that they want to implement, looking at it the next year and the year after that to see kind of like a health checkup, how they're mm-hmm. doing and progressing. So you kind of take more of a consulting role in those then yeah, that makes sense. Yep. And then we introduce those people to coaches that can actually hold yeah, them and show them what to do and how to grow and potentially exit. We work with individuals that are looking to buy businesses that are generally concerned with the asking price thinking, okay, based on the revenue, the proposed profitability of the company, the asking price is X and that doesn't compute. And so they reach out to us and they want a independent opinion of what the business should be transacting at and how do they go about then having that discussion with the broker or the seller from a negotiation standpoint. And that's one of my favorite activities. Oh yeah, that's basically what I do all day, every day, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, looking at a write-up on a business or a listing and then trying to kind of pull back the the onion and see, is it really listed how it should be? Is it, is it, you know, selling off of a, a proper multiple or the ad backs accurate, all that stuff? Yeah, there's, there's, we could do four hours on that, I'm sure. Oh, it's, <clears throat> I, I love that part. Cause like, especially when you look at a listing, the listing's been around for nine months, a year. Yeah. And you're like, Hey, did you request year to date financials? And it's like, no, they just gave me 2022. And I'm like, Oh, look at year to date. Yeah. You look at year to date and they're trailing on an annualized basis lower than they were in 2022. And I'm like, well, just based on that, you should write in your letter of intent, hey, I'm willing to buy the business for 30% below purchase price. Yeah. Because they haven't moved the listing. So it's, it's, it's fun. So other valuation services that we provide is we work with sellers who they've either identified someone to sell the business to Primarily, they already have an employee at the company that they want to sell to, or they have a close family member that is in an associated business, or they work at that company that they want to sell to. And so we work with them to identify, like, this is what you should be transacting at from a value proposition, fair market value. But at the same time, this is how you go about legal and financing. So we will make introductions um, for them to legal representatives, which I just found out that if I present someone with a name for legal and a bank for financing, that there might be a conflict of interest with the legal team. Oh, <laughs> wow. so I just found that out with you and Scott Oliver. Oh, okay. So, so we help sellers out there to just kind of get them ready. What do they need to have lined up? from not only valuation standpoint, but how to get the buyer in a good position to feel confident in making that investment decision. Right. From there, all, all the other valuation exercises are more kind of industry specific, or not industry, but more kind of regulation specific. So gift and estate planning. So if someone's looking to transfer equity into a trust or they're wanting to gift equity to a family member, like there are certain requirements that have to be met per IRS uh, tax code that requires an independent business valuation to be performed. Okay. So we do a lot of gift and estate. The ones that we've started getting into more are a lot of divorce and partnership disputes because those either are going down a path of mediation 
and hopefully a point of resolving and settling. But more often than not, we're seeing more litigation work. Mm-hmm. Which could then obviously turn into liquidation and then trying to figure out what to do there. Yep. Okay. And then as far as quality of earnings, are you doing that now? Then yeah. maybe you can kind of give a, a quick overview of what, what exactly that entails. Yeah. So a quality of earnings in its simple form is basically like you have your financial statement. So your profit and loss balance sheet and statement of cash flows. And the quality of earnings just opens you up to a clearer understanding of cash in, cash out, and what the proper structure of those financial statements should be and look like. And one of the main areas that is fun is when you're digging into general ledgers and identifying specific transactions or journal entries that have taken place, what are actually personal and non-recurring expenses and identifying those in a much more formal matter than someone saying, hey, I went to Japan and spent $10,000. So that should be an ad back. And it's like, well, where's the paper trail? Yeah. So quality of earnings, we, we have different stages of a quality of earnings. But at the end of the day, it's just providing typically the buyer a more kind of in-depth knowledge of the accuracy of the financials. And we work with some private equity firms from a quality of earnings standpoint, because once once you get to a certain size of, let's say you're selling the business for $10 million, like you know the buyer is going to get a quality of earnings, so the seller should have a quality of earnings. Because if you're not coming to the table with the same numbers, yeah, then it, it just creates more dissonance and awkward conversations. So both parties get quality of earnings and come to the table, it provides more of a constructive conversation. Have you, uh, while doing that process, um, I'm assuming you would, uh, you're, you're almost recreating the financials, right? So getting yep. the bank statements and and then going back and saying, did they put this in in the right category? It, you know, this is how they should actually look. Going through that process, what's like the craziest thing you've you've uncovered that oh, you can talk about? Obviously, <laughs> I I don't really dig into crazy items. No, I mean, like, like, have you found out. any fraud or have you found, you know, where oh, the, well, because that's essentially fr- what fraud you're and tax for, evasion right? are most common. Right. Um, finding expenses related to nefarious activities related to a mistress or some other party wow. on the side. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is very interesting. Yeah. They're on your payroll. Why are you paying them? Like, what do they do? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, my gosh. Some of the coolest stories, though, is identifying in someone's financials that, like, they had, they were allocating money to some sort of activity, and we found out that the guy had a private plane that he was expensing through the business, but it wasn't an asset on the business books. Wow! And he was in, I think it, he was a a diamond merchant and had mm. a storefront. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I I remember that. So that's got to be interesting. I mean, you probably see all kinds of. I mean, we we all see crazy things every day, but you you really dig into the deals and and uncover so many different things. We'll switch gears a little bit. So, how many employees do you guys have now? So we now have thirteen. Wow. Okay. Cool. So three three of them are predominantly more on the marketing, the CRM, and our the website website side. Mm-hmm. And then the other 10 are purely focused on business valuation. Okay. You know, I know we could probably do a 
three or four hour podcast about how you value a business. But maybe what we can do is kind of break it down to a traditional uh, small business. So maybe, you know, somewhere revenue between one and 10 million, mm-hmm. um, you know, EBITDA of a hundred grand to, you know, five, 600,000. What's a normal kind of breakdown just speaking to somebody that maybe doesn't have a good idea of how the process normally works. What do you do? What do you look at? How do you determine the value? Yeah. So first off, the value of any business is what is a willing buyer, willing seller hypothetically transacting at. So that is formally known as fair market value. So our ultimate goal as a business valuation firm is to conclude to a fair and reasonable value that these two parties should be transacting at based on the knowledge that we have in our experience. So from a valuation standpoint, when when looking at any business at the end of the day it's an asset and that asset is spitting off cash flow and that cash flow has a perceived risk associated with achieving it on a year-over-year basis and so the primary place where we start is collecting financials from the particular party to understand from a financial standpoint all the quantitative figures about the business, going from revenue, digging through each individual expense to arrive at net income and assessing, okay, relative to industry, is this normal? And if it's not, we will inquire further as to, is this a personal expense? Is this a non-recurring expense? Why was this incurred? And once they provide that information, we can then start making adjustments to the financials to arrive at what is seller's discretionary earnings, which really what you're, that that figure is what is the cash flow available to you as the owner of a business. And then we subtract out a replacement salary for the work that's being performed by that individual in the business. If, if they're the seller or if they have someone who is, if they're absentee or they have someone that is actually managing the day-to-day, we'll adjust SDE to factor in that individual because most individuals taking over a business are going to be operating that business. And so they won't need certain personnel. So adjustments have to take place in the financials, but we come to seller's discretionary earnings and then EBITDA, which is a mouthful of an acronym. But at the end of the day, it is in reference to the cash flow available to the business. So once we get there, that's pretty much like half of our analysis is just recreating what cash flow is for the business. And we then go from understanding the cash flow to looking at the various valuation approaches. And in the world of valuation, there's three, so it's very simple. The first is asset, which most ongoing concern operating businesses don't look at an asset approach to assess the value of the company because it's more of a liquidation scenario. However, we like certain businesses that fit that spectrum is we worked with a company from Idaho that is a septic tank well drilling company. And they had assets dating back to 1960. So we appraised their assets and their assets once we adjusted the balance sheet, because ultimately if your balance sheet, which is assets, then you have liabilities and equity. In the asset approach, we basically look at the assets and say which assets need to be adjusted to what is fair market value. 
If they were to sell them today, what would they sell for? And then we look at the liabilities. Liabilities are dollar for dollar. Then we just take assets minus liabilities equals equity. And that's the asset approach in its simplistic form. And this company's assets, we looked at that and the other approaches came in at a couple million higher than all the other valuation approaches because the cash flow didn't justify the value of the assets. So in a, in a situation like that, it would make more sense for the the business to just liquidate the assets than mm-hmm. to try to sell it as a going concern business. Where where if if a buyer looked at it and said, "Okay, I'm going to buy it based on what I'm going to receive in cash flow," that that value is too low compared mm-hmm. to what it's actually worth based on all their equipment. So yep. at that point, it's like the the seller either has to understand that they are selling it below what they can actually get by just liquidating the equipment. So mm-hmm. then they have to kind of make that decision if it makes sense. So Yep. And luckily this individual was gifting equity to family members. Okay. So it was a little bit different of a situation. Mm-hmm. Plus it was cool to learn about a company that's been operating since the 60s with yeah. the same equipment that appraises higher today than it did in the 60s. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's the asset approach. The market approach is the most familiar topic to anyone and everyone. Because on a daily basis, we assess the value of assets, whether we're at a grocery store or we're buying and selling a house or buying and selling a car, we're placing a value on a particular item and agreeing to it. And it's it's a transaction. So the market approach from a small business perspective for this particular company is looking at other private transactions that are available through various databases and seeing, okay, let's, let's, let's say this company is an HVAC company. So HVAC company transacting in Phoenix, Arizona, like, okay, let's look at transactions of HVAC companies in Phoenix, Arizona that have revenue between one and 10 million and a profitability of X. So setting criteria to kind of limit the number of transactions that kind of flow through that and seeing, okay, this company compared to these 12 others is very comparable. And so if it's comparable, we start then doing financial analysis and ratio analysis to determine is the company from an industry standard, um, below or above or below um, the industry? And if they're above, are they relative to these transactions performing better or worse than these transactions? And so through different math metrics, we then select the applicable multiples, whether it's revenue, EBITDA, or seller's discretionary that are applicable to assess an applied value for that business. And I know based on your experience, looking at other private transactions is not the best way to assess value because at the end of the day, we call it the guideline mergers and acquisitions method or others call it the direct market approach. There's different names for it, but it's a guideline because ultimately there are a lot of criteria, information about these companies that we just don't know. So to make a direct comparison to your particular company that we have significantly more information on is is difficult. So we, 
it's important to assess, but it's we have to bring in other methodologies to kind of back up and say, okay, what is happening in the market from a private transaction standpoint makes sense looking at other valuation approaches. And then what was the third one? Yeah, the third one is the income approach. The income approach is the one that gets the most complicated because you can look at, there's two primary methodologies. One's called the capitalization of cash flow or earnings, where you are essentially looking at the historical cash flow being generated by the company and assessing the risk or cap rate that is most applicable for that business. So going back to earlier, like you have your asset that's generating cash flow and there's a perceived risk. So that perceived risk in our world, we can capture in this figure called a cap rate. And we apply that cap rate to the cash flow to arrive at an implied value of a business. And the most, the industry that correlates most relevant to cap rates is real estate. Mm-hmm. Because if you're buying a real estate property, if yeah, you're on investment a, real estate, yeah, yeah, you're you're looking at LoopNet or all these different websites, and they'll show, okay, you could buy this building for a million dollars. This is the cash flow it's going to generate. Here's the associated cap rate. And so we're essentially doing that, but cap rate is kind of our unknown factor, and so we're trying to identify that cap rate for that business for what it's been able to do in the perceived risk. So in most um, SBA loans, are, you're usually you know, using more of the a multiple of SDE, right? Which is, which mm-hmm. is based on comparables, which then it, like you're kind of refining the comparables to see how closely they compare to mm-hmm. the business. And then of course, every business is gonna be a little bit different. So trying to you know, make a connection with real estate is really difficult. And a lot of people try to do that. And you know, a, a three bedroom, two bath house with a pool in a neighborhood is going to be fairly similar to the one down the street, mm-hmm. unless, you know, the, you know, they've it's had issues or, or, you know, maybe you hate the decor or whatever. Um, with a business, there's so many different factors that go into play. Um, it's, it's not common for a business in the exact same industry to have the exact same profit margin. And of course there's, you know, 30 factors that go into that, you know, the employees, the, the length, what kind of marketing they're doing, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's probably where the, the biggest challenge comes is trying to figure out which multiple to use. I know a lot of people seem to say, use realistic SDE of maybe maybe taking, you know, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and then adding in the seller's salary mm-hmm. and then using a three times multiple. I hear that all the time. Um, how accurate, how accurate is, is that? It? Yeah. Oh, great question. <laughs> I, I had this exact conversation yesterday with a guy who's looking at buying a physical therapy practice. And he's like, just give me a high level overview. And I'm like, it's kind of like me in your shoes telling a patient, hey, this is what we're going to do without understanding their diagnosis. Yeah. Like without doing x-rays without. Yeah. yeah like yeah. You, you need the information about the business, the financials to more accurately provide a number. But when I'm working with businesses that are just wanting something quick and simple, like I'll provide a, like because we value so many businesses per week, I can say, hey, for your business based on this, 
like here's the range in the multiples and go with those but like i feel like i'm doing a disservice kind of like we we received a letter from an accountant that did a valuation for a company that showed it's two pages long and it reads we think your company based on its historical cash flow is should transact at a four to seven x EBITDA multiple and so it showed a range of like 1.2 million to 2.1 million and it's like wait a second yeah they just grabbed a book like that that doesn't make any like how, how does that help you and they ended up transacting lower than the four multiple. Yeah. So which, which probably it was accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the three X multiple, it's a good starting point to assess, okay, are they like if you're looking at biz buy sell and seeing all these businesses for sale, if you see, okay, the asking price is a million dollars, the seller's discretionary is this. Um, it's above or below a three, let's say it's below a three X SDE multiple. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a better business to look at. So like there's, I, I use it as more of a, a metric to start with rather than conclude to. Yeah. And I think, I think that's kind of what I do as well when I'm, when I'll get a deal right away, or I work with a lot of buyers that are trying to find something Mm -hmm. and they'll send me, you know, the package from a broker and, Usually, I'll I'll kind of take and look right off the top. Okay, what are they saying the SDE is, and then the price, and I'll kind of you know quickly do the math in my head and say, okay, um, I'm gonna have to really dig into this and see how they came up with that number. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, then it also goes by a lot of times who the broker is, right? I mean, I'll I'll get some from a broker and I'll be like, I probably don't even need to look at this. They they're very experienced in what they're doing, and I'll get some from other ones, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm gonna have to try to dig into this, right? Um, and that's just how the industry is. But, and then from there, I'll say, okay, give me the tax returns. Let me look at this and I'll kind of go through. And I would say 70% of the time it's it's overpriced or they're using ad backs that we will not use or that I don't even think a buyer should use. Um, and, you know, there's there's various problems with, with you know, the, the way people are valuing them. And I think it's, it's a challenge for everybody involved, a buyer, the seller, the lenders, the brokers trying to figure out how where to list to get it sold Mm -hmm. and you know we also have it the other way right where there's times i'm looking at i'm going man you got a really good deal on this and then you're i get your valuation i'm like oh my gosh you've called me a couple times and been like why are they selling this so cheap i'm like i've asked them seven times like i I don't know so yeah it's it's really interesting you know again i mean i think that's a, a really good broad overview of how you value the businesses. I always joke that uh, everybody needs to stop watching Shark Tank because they they look at it and they say, oh, well, that's this time's uh, revenue or they just throw out numbers. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's always boggles my mind when they ask them the question, well, what are you doing so far in revenue? And they, they'll say like, oh, I did a million dollars this year. Um, they'll say, okay, what's your margin on that? What will you net? I'll net 200 grand. Okay, I'll give you a million dollars for five percent. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, a business is worth like five hundred grand. Like, no. Yep. So yeah, it's it's real interesting. So you mentioned Shark Tank. So back in April of 2020 mm-hmm. or t- 2020, 2021, I was on the show oh, yeah. The Profit. Yeah, Marcus Lemonis' show. Yeah, I remember, yeah. I remember seeing that. I texted you on like a Saturday and was like, hey, I just saw you on TV. I just laughed. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that one was a fascinating situation because the company uh, was 
doing great from a revenue standpoint, but they were in such a hard spot from a cash flow standpoint. And that's because they had they had taken on debt to grow, but that debt was to a point where they had more debt than what the cash flow would ever support. And so they always needed more debt. And so Marcus came in, didn't know about the situation with the company from a debt perspective. They called us as the valuation firm, which I thought was the coolest thing. Yeah. And they're like, by the way, you need to do the valuation for free. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> and so I show up on site because this is during COVID, like had to go through all the different precautions per CNBC's rules. And I show up and from start to finish, it's only four minutes long. And that's the only interaction I had with Marcus, but I had to present my valuation to him. Right. And it's like, oh, this is going to be awkward. Um <laughs> And I presented the valuation to him at, I think, like a $10 million enterprise value. And he was hoping for me to say something significantly lower. Yeah, and I I was actually shocked when I watched it. And you said that because, you know, I mean, just we we can't help but look at every single business and value it and and everything Mm -hmm. in our heads. And when you said that, I was kind of like, Wait, what? Like I almost called you like, Ryan, what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah, you know? well, well, the interesting thing is, is you have all these debt holders. And so from the position of the debt, like there has to, there's a point of equilibrium where those debt holders are willing to either accept payment right. or convert into equity. Correct. And it's like, if the debt holders at this point own the company, so what are they willing to transact at? And so it has to be a number that surpasses the debt owed to him because I think at the time they were making a, an annual interest of 15%. Wow. So from a return on shareholder standpoint, because that wasn't their personal money, it was assets under management that they had. Like, why would you ever convert right. to equity if you're making that percentage? Right. Unless there's going to be nothing there. Yeah. <laughs> right. So... Cool. Okay. Like I said, I mean, we could talk about this stuff forever. So I I took a poll and tried to get some questions for you um, from the audience. Oh, nice. Um, had a, had one which I feel like you you've kind of answered a little bit. Uh, it came from Alan Peterson, um, who we all love. Question was, what makes your firm different um, in what seems like a really crowded space? Yeah. Ooh, great question. So a couple of ways that we've tried to set ourselves apart. So within the world of business, everyone promotes NPS, so net promoter score. Mm-hmm. Like, how well am I doing? And it's usually a number out of 10. And it's like, that doesn't tell me anything. And so instead, we've gone out and collected objective Google reviews from all of our customers. And so no, not everyone leaves one, but we have 410 five-star Google reviews based on services rendered. Mm-hmm. And so like that is a huge selling point to others because they look at that and they're like, they can read the testimonials of what others have gone through and what they should expect to go through. So that's primarily one that we're known of outside of SBA. Within the SBA world, it is, it seems like a crowded space, but there's so much room because you, you go to conferences and you're like, okay, there's. 12, 13 business valuation firms here, but I know of another 20 
that work with all these other more smaller boutique SBA lending operations that are just individuals or other firms that like this is just one of their product lines. So within the world of SBA business valuation, like there are a number of individuals that are actually competing against each other. But I, I look at it more so from a collaborative standpoint because there's almost too much work that we cannot always do the work. If every bank came to us, like we couldn't fulfill it. So there's so much room for everybody else. But what sets us apart from others is when I first started, I worked at a valuation firm that they would tell bank lenders, hey, it's 10 business days to get this business valuation done. And I was a part of that process. And because I kept our annual operating plan, I looked at time spent on the engagement over hundreds of SBA business valuations over my tenure there. And I'm like, okay, if it takes this long to do a business valuation for SBA, why are we saying 10 business days? It's like you're working on it for a couple hours each day. Yeah. Like what happens if you take that and concentrate it in a shorter time frame and are able to work on it in three to five hour chunks per day? And it's like, oh, if that's possible, you could do a lot. And yeah, so when I, yeah. yeah, when I entered the space, I'm like five business days. Yeah. And like we've had some banks that have wanted us to do it in a quicker time frame. And I'm now at a point where I push back because to do the quality work needed to get it done, like you have so many hours that you need to spend. And on the ag, if you look at a bell curve, like, you know, you basically estimate that every project is going to be like the median. Right. And so five business days works perfectly for us. If you, if you now look at all the competitors outside the top three, all of them are basically now promoting three to five business days. Yeah, you, you changed the market. <laughs> we, we thank you for that, by the way. Yeah, doing it. And that's one thing I think is a, is a pretty good competitive advantage um, that the banks even can use by using you. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a lot of times where we start working on the closing items up, up front, and, I, and I'm trying to really cut down the time, um, you know, everybody always says, you know, time kills deals. So I, I try to continually refine that and get it done quicker and quicker and quicker. And one of the things that's kind of nice is people will come and they will say, should I order the report now when we're starting underwriting? And I usually tell them you, you can, you have that option. However, it only takes five days. It's going to take five days to do several other things mm-hmm. after we get the loan approved. So let's just go ahead and wait on that, not spend the money up front. If something happens in underwriting or, or your due diligence, you're going to be frustrated that you spent the money on it. So being able to say it only takes five days, we can get it done really helps the the lender out as well. So yeah. And, and like there are certain times like when the business valuation is ordered up front mm-hmm. just to help individuals understand, okay, is, is what, is being presented as the asking price supportable and legitimate. Right. And on those occasions, because like what's nice, what I love about working with SBA lenders is a majority of the documents and the questions that we already ask outside of SBA to one-off individuals, like the bank is collecting that because debt underwriting is just 
on the other side of a coin from business valuation. Like we're both looking at the underlying cash flow of the business. Exactly. So like because you're already addressing all these questions, it can shorten time frame. But at the same time, when the business valuation is ordered before underwriting, like we we are more detectives digging into all this information. And sometimes it's great. Sometimes we reveal information where it's like, hey, the seller presented this business, but within this business, there are two other businesses and they're only buying one. And yeah. you're you or only looking at the tax returns, and so we we will value the business, present our findings, and put a list together of this is why we valued the business at what we valued it at. That makes sense, yeah. And some bankers are like that kind of stinks. Others are just appreciative. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at the end of the day, if a good lender should want the buyer to be successful <laughs> when they're done. And yeah. if if they're not going to be or there's any kind of doubt, they should be stopping the process and saying, hey, don't buy this business or let's restructure this. Let's work on it. Let's see what we can do to make sure you're not putting yourself in a bad spot. I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you do that too many times and you have no credibility with your bank and then you know nobody wants to work with you. So, yep. All right. So the next question was um, – we see a lot of listings that include the value of the business based on the SDE, but then the broker on the listing is then on top of that adding inventory or equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, I get this a lot. I have a, a lot of um, disagreements with the brokers on this. Maybe you can give me your opinion of of how that should actually be valued. Yeah, this is one of our most common questions too. It's like, well, we have all this equipment. It should be added to the value. And it's like, well, let's use a common example. You have someone who's coming to mow your lawn. They have to show up pretty much with a truck and they're going to pull out a lawnmower from the back of the truck. And then they're going to perform their service. You pay them money. So that whole interaction, what did you need? You needed a truck and you needed a lawnmower. Without the truck or lawnmower, you can't mow a lawn and so you can't collect revenue. So like your equipment is in place to help you generate revenue and therefore cash flow. Yes. Thank you. So I'm in I'm I can die happy now. Um <laughs> that's that's one of the biggest arguments. And same thing with inventory, right? The way I always explain it to somebody with inventory, and I don't want to steal it from you, but I usually tell them like you cannot create seller's discretionary earnings if you didn't have something that you made that you can sell or that you have to sell. So the sale should include a normal amount of inventory. The same with the normal, the equipment necessary to produce the income, to produce the SDE, which gives it value. And mm-hmm. that's always a, a tough thing to get, they get the especially the brokers to understand is they say, oh, well, it's you know a three and a half times multiple of SDE and then three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars in inventory. And I'm like, no, if they don't if you take away the inventory, you don't have the SDE. Same thing with the equipment, right? So Yeah, yeah. and and like it, it's really with inventory, it's like industry specific, whether or not it is additive or you only add what's considered excess. Because mm-hmm. you really do need a normal operating level of working capital, which includes inventory. Right. Because if you didn't have that inventory, and let's say your lead time from when you 
put in the purchase order to when you receive the the inventory is four weeks. Like you got to have four weeks of inventory on right. hand. If you don't, kind of like you look at liquor stores, liquor stores is kind of the most common example of where inventory is more so additive mm-hmm. is because the lead time on a, receiving that shipment is significantly less because there's distributors and warehouses within like a 50 mile radius that can supply that store with what you need. Right. So it's much different than when they're making the actual inventory. Yeah. When they're making the actual inventory, it's like one, you got raw materials, you got work in progress and you got finished goods. Technically everything that is a work in progress, like that shouldn't be added to like raw materials. You can make a stronger argument there. So, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really business by business what is appropriate. All right. I'm going to cut that piece up and I'm going to start emailing it to people. All right. Another thing, you, you did cover this a little bit, um, but maybe you could just throw out like one or two quick things. Um, what can a seller do 24 months before they want to sell um, to increase their value? Oh, great question. The first thing that I think you would agree with is hire a bookkeeper mm-hmm. and make sure you have someone going through your financials. Because if your financials are not in order, like you you can't sell your business because that's the first area that people, they want to look at. And if they start asking questions, then it's like, okay, if you don't have an answer to that question, like what else is wrong in your financials? So your your financials will impact not only the value, but how long the process takes to sell your business and whether or not you're actually going to get a buyer that will come to the table. Because a lot, a lot of brokers that we work with, like I have a buddy here locally in Salt Lake and he's like, if the financials are not in order, like I won't even look at it. Yeah. Because it's, I got to interpret what they've done. And that's, that's why a lot of individuals will order a quality of earnings because there's something about the financials that don't look right. And so there's a lot, like you don't want skepticism with your financials. So that that's the primary area I would focus on. Okay, thank you. Yeah, hey, I definitely agree with you. Um, another question that uh, a lot of people brought up, you know, there, there's always kind of this uh, personal expenses uh, thing that goes on. And we, we get a lot of uh, sellers saying, hey, you got to kind of work with me here. You know, my spouse runs all their Amazon expenses through the business. I use all my vacation. I at what point um, do you, it, I guess I guess more of the question is, is there a line in the sand where you're saying, I will include this in the valuation even though it's tax fraud? Um, like, how do you kind of determine, is that part of the SDE? You know, obviously as SBA lenders, it, there's kind of a gray area there as well where we're saying, I understand that you did all of this, you know, we're not we're not disagreeing that there's probably a higher amount of of discretionary earnings here. However, a, at what point are we rewarding a seller for committing tax fraud mm-hmm. and by also giving them the value so they can sell the business? Yeah. So when it comes to addbacks of personal expenses, like one of the areas that we try to focus and collect is a paper trail and documentation of those personal expenses. 
And then looking at the financials after we have the personal expenses laid out and looking at it from that same definition of fair market value, willing buyer, willing seller. Like if, is it normal for an individual in this industry to incur that expense? And if the answer is yes, then it's not an ad back. So an example would probably be auto expense, right? Their their car payment and maybe their gas and car insurance is, is fairly normal for almost every single business, whether they need the vehicle to operate and drive around and check on the business or deliver something or whatever. Most of the time, we're still going to see auto expense in one way, shape or form, right? Yeah. Like, for instance, if you're, in, you're a contractor, like a lot of contractors will have all their family vehicles in the business. Right. And so like the truck that is used by the owner is primarily business oriented. Like if you have branding on the vehicle, that's business. But but if there is a Tesla Model S, you know that that's a personal vehicle. Or my favorite is a, a, uh, I think it's a Toyota Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So a minivan? Yeah. And it's like, okay, that's obviously a car that someone in the family owns that's yeah. not operational in the business. And so like you could kind of go through and you can see like what is actually a personal expense. A lot of the gray area comes down to expense items that are business and personal. So like meals and entertainment. Mm-hmm. It is so hard to know what truly is personal Right. And what is truly business. And so there we look at like industry data and say, so there's a cool company called BizMiner that has direct access to all of the financials, the IRS reports oh, for wow. tax purposes. And so you could break it down and look at a plumbing contractor in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas that is doing like 500,000 in revenue. And so it pulls up and shows there are 180 data points and these are their historical financials for the last five years and here's the aggregate average. So then you can determine whether or not their auto expense is normal or yep. you know, or meals and entertainment. Or like a retirement plan, like pension mm-hmm. and profit sharing or employee benefits. Right. And so like we, we focus more so on the expenses that we can truly assess and see and strip out and say, this is personal. Like a lot of contractors will do repairs on their house or they'll remodel (laughs) business. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're like, okay, provide all like the receipts, documentation and just show me. Yeah. And they could, they could show it to you. And like, those are easier to take into consideration. Right. Then like, let's use straight fraud buying your spouse a, a new Louis Vuitton bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or individuals like going back to that liquor store, mm-hmm. like a lot of liquor stores will have what sales reported in their POS right, from credit cards. And then they have cash receipts. Yeah. And for one reason or another, the cash receipts never show up in the tax return. Yep. But when it comes time to selling the business, they're like, Oh, here's an additional 300,000 in cash collected. That should be a part of revenue and it's like did you report it to the irs and they're like no and it's like well then you can't eat your cake twice correct yes thank you uh, so yeah we could we could probably talk about that forever so another question was should a quality of earnings be required by the sba 
Oh, that is a great question. I've never thought about it. In in some respect, there are companies that should always look at equality of earnings. What what would be an example of that? So like if you're transacting at like $3 million, mm-hmm. like you can almost look at it from a threshold standpoint. Right. Like your business is a little bit more complicated. And so therefore you should recreate and dig into the financials more. However, so, like so if, maybe putting a threshold on it would work. Like yeah, a threshold would work. Three million, something like that. But like there, there are individuals in the world of TikTok, YouTube Shorts, it's Instagram Shorts that are pushing, like, hey, if you're looking to buy a business, like I've done this for every business that I bought, you get a quality of earnings, and I will have people call me up and say, hey, I'm buying a business for a million dollars, and so-and-so said that I should get a quality of earnings. And I'm like, okay, there's one bank account. There's one company credit card. There's five vendors. You have three employees. Like you, you personally could look at the financials, look at their QuickBooks and see if there's anything yeah, we're going on. The bank statements. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's not that difficult. It gets difficult when the company is larger, you're dealing with, so like our our water softener company, we have over 4,000 customers. Oh, wow. And so that means you have a lot of small transactions. Right. And so it's like, how detailed and minute do you want to get in digging into cash in, cash out, reconstructing the balance sheet, the P&L? So it, that's a hard one. Yeah. So like, maybe, maybe it's a threshold. I don't know. I mean, you, you kind of hope, from a buyer side that it, it's, it's, it's like playing with fire, right? Like it, it works. It makes sense. Um, it probably could save some deals, um, from going bad down the road, maybe, maybe limit some fraud, but then you're adding another expense, expense. another thing for, for someone to do. They already, everybody already complains how long it takes to get an SBA loan. So it might just yeah, turn to be and, more prohibitive. And with the quality of earnings, like they are sometimes great. There are firms that do a phenomenal job with quality of earnings Mm -hmm. and other firms where you look at their quality of earnings and you're like, this doesn't help. Yeah. They they spent money for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so like there, there it's, there has to be a level of standards, but right now there really aren't standards because everyone has, this is what we're going to do. So for instance, Mm -hmm. the seal masters franchise that we're looking at acquiring the individual that we're going to partner with to buy it wants to get a quality of earnings. So we got a quote from someone and their presentation was beautiful on why you should go with them and why their pricing was what it was. And I just emailed him with, Hey, this is what we're going to do. This is what we need. And like, I don't, I don't dress it up because quality of earnings at the end of the day is it's just ugly. Yeah. Well, and that's what, that's, what's funny about business, right? I mean, I, I get that myself where people say, well, there's, you know, three lenders that I'm talking to, like, why should I go with you? And, mm-hmm. and, or they get frustrated because I just send them a, a needs list and I'm like, do you want to talk on the phone? Do you want to do anything? And then it's, I, I guess I, part of it is we get so busy that you kind of lose that crazy presentation that you want to like completely woo somebody. And I usually just tell them at the end of the day, like, I know what I'm doing. I, I, I probably do more transactions than anybody. Like, I'll, I'll get it done. I've done this myself. I've bought mm-hmm. businesses. I've got an SBA loan for buying a business. Let's 
let's like you know and then usually they'll kind of calm down whereas then you get the ones where they're oh well we sponsor everything and we advertise we're the biggest spa lender in the country and this and that and it's like at the end of the day like it's it's really difficult to figure out who to go with but mm-hmm. i could see where where that person would say well their yeah. thing is pretty and it it drew me to it you know so yeah. yeah and i'm like at the end of the day what do you need you need something functional like a pdf report is great yeah but i like sending people the actual excel file that we put together and built right because one if if you're going to a bank, the bank's going to love having the Excel file. Yeah. Because then they just add it to their Excel file and just link. Yep. The PDF is great, but then you start questioning, where does this number come from? So you're having to like follow right. and go back in pages. Whereas in the Excel file for a quality of earnings, you could just hit control back bracket and you see the source where it came from. Well, we're not all Excel experts like you, but <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, I'll do, uh, let's do two more. Um, what is the biggest gap that you've, uh, done with evaluation between what you appraised it as and what it sold for both ways? So high and low. That is actually very difficult to know just because like if we're dealing with SBA, mm-hmm. like we're part of the process, but we're just part of the process. So we don't know whether or not it actually closed. Okay. But okay, from so from the purchase agreement that you received to the valuation value. you did. Yeah. So a recent one that we just worked on, they were transacting. So it was a convenience store transacting at about 1.3 million. We came in at 230,000. Wow. That's a big difference. Big difference. And reason being is... They were using. They had adbacks galore. <laughs> yeah, they were the actual, and this was a one-off scenario, essentially. The between the adbacks at the end of the day, it was still transacting at like a six x SDE multiple, and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. And the yeah. guy, the guy was like, I know it doesn't make sense, but I want you to put it in, do the valuation, so I have something to present to the business owner and say, hey, look at this, look at the logic. They can blame it on you, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, like business valuation, like I'm happy to be the bad guy. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's a weird, the lenders get that a lot too, so yeah. Oh, I bet. That's an SBA rule, it's not my fault, sorry. Yeah. With, so. And kind of on the, the upside, we've worked with companies that, let's say, well, I'll give a broad example just because I don't know specifics off the top of my head, but individuals who are selling businesses that are selling to a key employee and yeah. they have such an admiration for that key employee and understand kind of what they did to help grow the business that they're willing to sell the business for half of what it should be transacting at because mm-hmm. they want to set up that person well, they, it's kind of like they built in the equity, right? So, yeah. so technically the way I always, I love those deals. Um, I always think it's really cool when they do that. Sometimes the challenge is getting the bank to be comfortable with it because nine times out of 10, that individual doesn't have any kind of net worth because they've been either underpaid or, or, you know, they're, they're not making mm-hmm. the wages they, that the owner of the business has been making, but they've been essentially operating or running the business. I get really frustrated when credit looks at that and says, well, I don't, I don't like this buyer. Um, and I'm looking at it going, the biggest challenge you have in 
uh, a change of ownership on the business is the change of ownership, right? So the person coming in to buy the business could have this crazy cool PFS, you know, have tons of liquidity, but if they don't know how to operate that business or they don't know how to deal with people or the vendors or they don't have the qualifications for it, I'm more worried about that person than the guy that's been the key employee for 10 years that unfortunately hasn't been able to save because they're making 50 grand and live in San Diego. Mm -hmm. They don't have the money to put down on the business, right? And then that person, the seller looks at it and says, this guy has been you know, basically underpaid for 10 years. So now I'm going to give him a $500,000 reduction on the sale of the business because they've earned that, right? I mean, I I love those deals that they make me happy that this person worked hard and got into it. But then sometimes we get frustrated with credit because they're like, oh, they're not a good borrower. And it's like, no. So yeah, so we see those. um, I think the craziest one I've seen, I want to say it was about $8 million in in the difference between what they bought it for and what what you came in at on the value. It was was pretty crazy. The the most fascinating deal, going back to that scenario where the contractor stopped selling and so the whip went to zero. So the initial asking price was around $2.5 million. They were transacting at $1.5 million. When we found out that there was no whip. They essentially closed the business down, right? Like yeah. there's still value associated with it, but like it dropped to the low hundred thousands. And and the the buyer like the buyer still wanted to buy the company because of the relationships. So there was perceived value. But the seller looked at it and was like, Oh, I'll go back to selling and we'll transact in six months. <laughs> and it's like like, do you want to revisit this acquisition in six months? Yeah. It, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it happened. So, all right, we'll do one more. Um, where do you think that the industry is headed um, with uh, what you do? Do you think AI is going to have a, a big part in it? Um, you know, what it, what have you kind of thinking is, is going to happen in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah, ooh. Well, 20 years, I have no clue. (laughs) Um, Just right now, from an AI standpoint, when it comes to, like, we we use AI in our process from the standpoint of, like, writing footnotes and taking into account, like, industry and economic information. There are tools that are being built out that we could have access to that would do phenomenal research for us. But right, right now we're just testing them. But there are a lot of elements that AI will replace, but more so it'll enhance right. what we do. Because at the end of the day, I have a great job because I get to sell my opinion to others. Yeah. And so it is the professional judgment that ultimately influences the conclusion for that business value. And so AI can replace a lot of the actual building of the Excel model, the writing of the report. But at the end of the day, like you still need someone to provide that opinion and will stand by it. So like there's a lot of, I think someone tried to present an IRS tax court case recently, valuation report that was primarily like chat GPT produced. Mm -hmm. And it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Because, like, we we have to be able to essentially die on the hill 
by our opinion. Right. And so we got to support it. And if there's reasoning as to why there should be a change, like we have to be able to take that reasoning and make adjustments to what we've produced. And so it's, it's a lot of collaboration. And so AI will, will replace a lot of what we do, but the actual judgment collaboration part won't, won't disappear. So it's almost like it'll, it'll maybe speed up the process or, or aid you in the research, eliminate some, some manual work. Um, Yeah. It's kind of like, like you look at our Excel model and we've tried to automate it as much as possible, but I personally love manual work. Yeah. Because there is a lot, like for instance, entering financials, like you could get access to softwares that will just spread it for you. Right. But when it's the entering of the financials where you look at and you see, oh, that is a weird expense. Yeah. Like why is that 10% of revenue? And so like you start, like you're doing analysis while you're entering data. Yeah. It, 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 makes you ask questions as well that yeah that's what i've liked I, you know sometimes i'll get so busy that i i can't give a hundred percent on a deal and i'm like i i'll look at it the numbers work the individual works okay kind of you know slap it together and and send it to credit and then the underwriter called me hey i have questions for you and i'm like oh this one i didn't like really dig in and, and look at all the numbers and i mean we still usually are fine and i can jump in real quick from doing it forever but i do like the process of looking at it because while i'm doing it i'm usually asking questions at the same time yep. um, to try to understand it a little bit better so it's interesting so all right so my final two questions that um that i always ask do you have a mentor have you ever had a mentor yeah so i i have two primary mentors um, my first is my father because he, he joined an individual named Mike Novogratik in 1989 and built an accounting firm that when he retired had 750 people. Wow. And so from the standpoint of not only being great as a dad and a husband, like he, he's a mentor for my personal life, but from a business standpoint, I always have someone that I can go to and talk to and ask questions about how did you do this? How did you think about compensation relative to years and experience? And then from the standpoint of just having someone to bounce ideas off of, uh, I have a good buddy. His name is Dave Hinckley, who we randomly met by introduction of my business banker when I started. Oh, wow. He's like, oh, you should talk to this person. So we scheduled an appointment, met for lunch, and we've been friends ever since. And so we bounce ideas off of each other, have tried to start businesses with each other, but they're more concepts. And now actually with our water softener company, we have a management agreement with them. Oh, cool. Where his team is managing day-to-day operations. And if they hit X, Y, and Z KPIs, like this happens like it's so like we're doing stuff with them in collaboration he's taught me a lot so that's awesome yeah sometimes you you meet people in a weird way and it it just works out so that's like that's great all right last question um you are obviously motivated you get up at 3 a.m 
you know, you keep taking on more and more things, looking at, at so many different ways to improve the business and, and find new businesses. Like why, what, what motivates you? Oh, great question. Ultimately, I, I've always loved creating and serving. And so from the standpoint of building peak, I got to a point with my wife, Kelly, where we looked at the business and we're like, we're doing really good. Like if we wanted to, we can provide a living for someone else to join our team. And it's like, oh, that would be kind of fun. Let's see, let's try that out. And so now we're at a point where we're providing for the livelihoods of 13 families and then all the other businesses, same thing. Yeah. And so like, that's how I look at it is I'm helping them provide for their families and build what they think is their ideal financial situation. And so that's what I enjoy. Like I have uh, an employee on my team. So every week I meet with every employee for 15 to 20 minutes and just chat with them about life and ask them, hey, what questions do you have about what you're doing? But where do you want to go? So like I had one employee that was like, I want to, I want my wife to not work for this pay for this many hours per week. And I'm like, perfect. I'll just raise your salary to what she was making. And he's like, oh, that's awesome. Better hope the other employees don't listen to this. <laughs> oh, well. I'm just kidding. Yeah. But yeah. They, they, they know. deserved it. Yeah. They deserved it. And then I have another employee that really wants to like be part of the team long term. And so we're actually looking at other valuation firms to acquire where he would be a partner in. Hmm. We have other so and the the like I want to create equity situations for my team. I have a a business consultant that I work with in Tulsa, Oklahoma. His name is Clay Clark. He is a business partner called Dr. Zellner that started his business in the optical like industry mm-hmm. and all of his doctors that reach a certain tenure are basically stuck making X amount of dollars a year. However, because they've been with him that long, they now get profits interest in an entity that has equity ownership and all the other dozen companies he owns. So now those people are making more money from that investment than at their current job. However, there is a stipulation in their contract where if they don't remain working with them, like if they quit, all that extra money disappears as well. Yeah. So it's like a great incentive and it's like, oh, that would be cool. So I'm actually trying to build that same process so that everyone on my team wants wants to stay because the work is fun and enjoyable but can make more money because of the success that we're having. Um, They're helping us build that success. And because we know what we need to do to like build businesses and grow and make more money, we're able to pass that along to them and help them in their careers and what they want to do. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You're only as good as, as the employees. So taking care of them makes sense. Yeah. And you've got some great employees. So, you know, it's been great. I think, we might have to do another one. I'll, I'll get some more questions, you know, maybe oh, a year from I, now or something. We we can yeah. talk forever. I'll go to Texas. <clears throat> All right. Sounds good. There's um, a, 
I guess Malk Conference is in Houston. Okay. Well, maybe I'll come down there and Hopefully, see. Hopefully. I was hoping for Dallas. Yeah. Or Austin. Not Austin. Uh, Waco. Okay. Yeah. They get a lot of people that go there. Yeah. Um, all right. Where can people find you? Yeah. So people can find us by visiting our website, peakbusinessvaluation.com. Or all they have to do is call. So 435-359-2684. If they love LinkedIn... I post profusely on LinkedIn. So I write for 30 minutes a day and then I schedule them out throughout the day. Yeah, that's great, great information you put out too. I always appreciate seeing it. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. Oh, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jared. Of course. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this podcast informative and helpful. Please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. For more information, or if you'd like to discuss a transaction, please go to www.jaredwjohnson.com.